everybody out there listening to Better People, Better Business. It's a delight, as always, to have you with us. And thank you for your time and for trusting me and us with the opportunity to have a chat. Uh, today, I am talking to a person who I deeply admire and love. Her name is Kate Billing. Uh, she is based over in New Zealand um, and is the most amazing person. Uh, to give an intro into Kate, she's one of New Zealand's leading voices on gender equity and leadership development. Uh, in particular, her work focuses on growing leadership capacity. We're definitely going to talk about that because I think it's a really interesting space to delineate into. Uh, and the capacity to create personal and collective resources required to meet the challenges and opportunities of the new reality of life and work. Kate's work integrates leadership development, personal development, leadership well-being to create fully human development experiences that better support leaders through a whole person plus whole life philosophy. This approach to development enables leaders to become the people they need to and want to be. Individually and collectively, people who are examples of what's possible when we commit to deep levels of authenticity, humanity, and responsibility in the ways that we live, lead, and work. It's a cracking introduction, and I think it's a wonderful representation. Good morning. We're morning here. Wherever you are, welcome to you. But good morning, Kate Billing. Good morning, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's a delight. I'm actually quite excited. I've been... I was just thinking as I was coming to work this morning, going, man, I have the most amazing bunch of A-list people who I get to chat with. It's so cool. And I do consider you another one of the uh, A-list people that I get to talk to with the amazing work you are doing. Thank you. I'm very uh, flattered. Uh, <laughs> completely earned and appropriate. Okay, a um, bunch of people listening uh, from all sorts of walks of life. And we start all of these with an open-door question, which is, the podcast is called Better People, Better Business. And uh, I'm curious, when I say that, what do you hear? What do you think? What does that mean to you? Uh, great question. Um, for me, it's that at the core of why I, along with my business partner slash husband, uh, why we started our business nearly 14 years ago was really this uh, idea that, you know, our, our part of the, the landscape of the people, culture and leadership landscape has been about developing leadership capability historically in, in the workplace. And I guess I looked at it and off the back of my experience in HR and, and recruitment and as a student of human potential for like 35 years now, looking at it and saying, if we're going to develop people at work, uh, and we acknowledge that they're not an asset or a resource. They are a volunteer workforce in lots of ways that mm. chooses to show up every day. Mm. If we want to develop them as people who can do better work for us as an organisation to create value in the ways that matter, then why not develop them as better humans at the same time? Because my experience certainly had been that uh, when people felt seen, um, supported, uh, and, you know, without putting too strong a point, loved even, mm. not in a romantic, you know, or inappropriate way, but loved, you know, and, and developed as whole humans, that they delivered well over and above anything that any organisation could legitimately expect to pay them for. 
Mm. So I think better people is, you know, if you, how are you helping people to become a better version of themselves, not just once, but consistently through the, through time, because together, not just individually, but together, those people 100% create a better business. Business is people. Mm. There isn't there. It's not a thing if it doesn't have people in it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cool reflection, and it often, sometimes takes a couple of couple of moments to get there. But you got there really fast, which is there ain't no business without those people. No, you can have a pretty brand and a shop front and a nice website, but there are very few at the moment. 100% AI based businesses that don't deliver anything that doesn't require human beings to be involved. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, very cool. Mm. And thank you. With I'm really intrigued with the frame that we talked to in your introduction around growing leadership capacity. And it sounds like you're really deliberately etching that piece out because we talk about lots of different words when it comes to leadership. We talk about capability, we talk about, you know, the, the, the proficiency, all that, but you talk about capacity. Mm. What's that about? It's, but it, comes, it comes from a couple of things. First, from my own experience, being a leader and a business owner and what happens when you're out of gas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never experienced uh, that, don't know what you're talking about. Yes, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, I think in particular the crucible of the last few years and how that has shown capacity as a critical factor in potential and performance for individuals and, and organisations and, and in particular leaders. Uh, and also through my work with leaders and organisations is, you know, a lot of most of the people we work with are kind of mid to senior level executive stuff and business owners, right? So, and they have, they are incredibly capable people who've been mm. promoted, done the work, demonstrated they can do the job and more, have been developed through time. You know, they've got toolkits. They've got toolkits. They don't even know where the toolkits are. Yeah. You know, they've forgotten where the toolkits are. So this conversation about content and development programs and more toolkits and et cetera, my experience is they've forgotten more than they can lay their hands on. Mm. And that the challenge is not actually about the capability it's about having the um capacity not the capability to deliver and that includes the awareness of a particular moment mm. to recognize there's an opportunity to deploy a capability they have or develop it so there's this contextual awareness um relational awareness you know in terms of the relationships they have and the, you know this internal um, awareness of their whether they're in a place to do the thing that they need to do or what they need to do to create that mm. capacity themselves. So there are a number of levels on which it operates for an individual and then certainly for a leadership community or a leader with their team from a relational perspective around capacity. Because although the context is changing a lot always and certainly in the last three years, that means we need different capabilities, but it's also a drain on our capacity dealing with uncertainty and change draws draws down heavily on the capacity bank account. So my experience is that the things that people are being challenged by, um, it's not that they don't know how to do it. It's just that they haven't got the headspace or the energy or the free attention and focus 
or the social capital mm. in terms of relationships, which is another part of capacity. Um, and there can be some capability pieces, but to be honest, even things like how to facilitate conflict for, for creative ends to, to create, generate great ideas and deeper connection. Mm. You can cognitively understand a pattern for how a conflict will roll and how you should best facilitate it. But if your capacity is at zero and you've not invested in social capital because you've been working remotely and haven't spent any time physically with the person to build that, then the ability of you to deliver results through that thrashing uh, mm. is going to be significantly diminished. So it kind of, I see capacity as this most single point of failure in the system of how we access potential for, for performance um, individually in life and collectively in an organisation. Mm. That's really powerful. And I think, it, I, I suspect... There's a bunch of people listening who are now thinking, wondering, or considering uh, how they sit in that capacity frame. Um, mm. And it is like, and it's, I think it's a cool use of a word that's absolutely been available, but probably been a bit ignored. Because um, there's lots of other really cool, funky, sexy kind of words like resilience and all these other words, which are, they fit in the same frame, but they're not the same thing. Um, no, and I, and I think there's a lot of, um, I think there can be a bit of eye rolling, collective mm. eye rolling now, particularly after the last few years around mm. stuff like well-being, resilience, yeah. vulnerability, mindfulness, whatever, any of those things called out as, lo- as lone components. Mm. It's a bit of like, yeah, yep, whatever. Absolutely. And, and that it has been pushed onto the, I mean, there is a capacity challenge in organisations in that we're trying to do too much too fast. And we need to stop doing some stuff. I, I know someone who works in the productivity space, is, it, you know, works with organisations all over the world. And her view is across the board. I said, you know, my question to her was how much of what organisations do, do you reckon is a, what we call an F what, mm. a F waste of time? Mm. Uh, and she said uh, 43%. Mm. And during COVID, because of COVID and working remotely and not all being co-located and things like that, um, Adam Grant talked about this a few months ago, where there are 40% more meetings happening in most organisations. You know, and these are all things that don't just chew up time. And often people think that's the blunt instrument of capacity is time. It's part of it. But it's how are we using our time? What Parts of time do we use for what, use for what tasks? To optimizing energy, attention, and focus for certain things. But you know what? We're just plain trying to do too much, and most of it's the wrong stuff. But nobody's creating the space to look at those things and then being brave enough to say, "I'm going to stop." Mm-hmm. And this is this what what's been called quiet quitting, which I think is a terrible name for this thing. Um, but people just bringing some healthy boundaries back in and going, I'm not available 24-7 to answer emails and respond to things. I'm going to say no to some stuff. You know, it's kind of partly that. And that's people, for whatever reason, trying to protect this capacity piece and some sense of rationality about the place of work in our lives. I think work has become too much of how people see who they are, how they value themselves, their way of getting meaning and purpose and connection in, in the world. I think we've got completely out of whack 
Mm. I think it's uh, that's a really great reflection. Thank you, Kate. And I, I, if I can go a little further with it, I suspect it's possibly to come on the back of the fact that during this complexity called COVID, whatever you want to call it, of years, the anchor that was for most people present was work, mm. be, it, be it remote, less less so physically, but remotely. So work became an anchor that they could hang on to. Um, and somewhere along the way, expectations changed and even our own consciousness around what work is. And, and I think some of us, uh, a lot of us, potentially threw way too much into that bucket called work um, and forgot that work is you know, something I've been happily bagging on about for years, which is, you know, work it, work and life are not bedfellows. Work is a part of life. No one should put work on a pedestal with life because life is top. Work is one of the elements that sit beneath in the bucket called life. Um, I think what you're talking about there is this realisation where people have, I suspect people have probably put so much effort into work because it was an anchor they could still connect with. We could do this this sort of video thing and feel a sense of worth and worthiness and and it's changed and it's become a little too consuming and um, I agree with you, this whole quiet quitting, I like it about as much as I like the great resignation. It's just this nonsense that some of the big end of town use to create business opportunities, but actually isn't true. It's something different going on here. And what is that different? Yeah. Um, and a couple of things on that. I think there is uh, absolutely, as you say, there was maybe work expands to fill the time available. You know, um, and there was a lot of time available. There was. <laughs> like all, all of it. Um, and that is partly, there are a couple of contributing factors to that. One is that we have underestimated the place of <clears throat> how much structure the conventional pre-COVID going to the office experience of work gave to our lives. Mm. You know, there were, it, it, it held a physical space and a space and time and identity and way of being in the world between specific hours of the day in a particular place, right? So you had routines in the morning that were associated with preparing to leave home and become your work self, yeah. get there, then be that work self during the day, then leave that. And the edges had got blurry, particularly for senior leaders or people who work in global or multi-time zone businesses. They'd been a little blurry for a while in mm. some of those places. Uh, you know, and then there was the third space, again, these really important third spaces that are, that are little bridging zones between work and home where we get to not only transition between physical space but transition in, in identity and headspace as well and, and get into role and out of role. And so those disappeared. Mm. Um, a whole lot of the social connection disappeared. Um, a whole lot of the downtime that's actually really good because you can't focus. There's a thing called the ultra D and rhythm and you can't focus and do deep work for more than 90 minutes at a time. And so there would be natural breaks and there would be transitions between meeting rooms and not all of that disappeared and you're just always on. The other thing from a context perspective that happened during COVID was uncertainty was the day-to-day reality mm. of everything and a complete lack of control over anything and with mm. governments rushing in to take control wherever they could about various things, some for good reason and a lot not. Um, that So we seek to control whatever we can 
And the brain is, you know, there's also nothing that human beings are wired to fear more than pathogens, the unseen Mm. enemy. So we're in this heightened threat response state about all of the things, lack of certainty, lack of control, and the deadly virus. Yep. Which means we're in then a fear state and you all the news all over the news with businesses going under and jobs. So and we don't we're not hunter gatherers anymore. So you have to show up to work to make money to keep your home and provide food for your family and get this sense of self and all the rest of it. And so people overcommit in that space. Um, because they mm. want to make sure that they're creating value and they're occupied and they've got some certainty and some sense of control and involvement. And the the other thing that happened, and we see this especially with senior women, women leaders generally and senior women, is they always, any team led by women, delivers better diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging outcomes pre-COVID, generally accepted. During COVID, um, women tended to take on more of the pastoral care Mm. for teams just because Mm. as well as because it sort of dialed up those normal ways of being that deliver the better DEIB outcomes. And then they were still doing more of the labour and home. You know, the latest McKinsey report, senior women say 52% of senior women say they're responsible for the majority of labour in the home. Only 13% of senior men say the same. And that latest survey was done globally during COVID. Mm. So you then have certain groups within society who are carrying more of the load as well as the workload. And so everyone is just um, broken at this point. (laughs) You know, so it's, there are a whole lot of really good human reasons why we've done what we've done over the last three years. But now we find ourselves in a place where we've got to understand more about that humanness and seek to proactively make change. And unwiring it is going to be tricky. Mm. Great. whole bunch of data there. People listening... I would offer to go back five minutes, rewind, press play again and have a listen to that. Uh, There's a lot of wisdom in there and a lot of framing that I think may be helpful to understand where you are or where some of your people, family, friends, associates, colleagues, whatever are as well. That was gold. Thank you, Kate. So people, it's fair to say people are broken because of this complexity that we've all just had this big experiment we've all been a part of. Life is always an experiment, but it's probably been a pretty intense one. Um, to use the, to play with the metaphor more, the Bunsen burner has certainly been turned up high. It has. It's been, it's been boiling away. Um, so while people are broken, we're also innately, you know, we say this, that people are both beautiful and broken. At the same time, there's a bunch of beauty. Um, so I'm interested in how are you thinking through, um, you know, to the to the beauty side of it where, we have been through this mess, and I will have people put my hand up and say, yeah, I get the fact that we're broken. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Christmas this year. I can't – at times I have to be careful. I don't wish it too soon because it is about um, wanting to timestamp and go, well, 23. We were talking about this before we started having a bit of a yarn about, well, 20 was going to be a cracking year, and, oh, bugger, March happened, and the world got a little messy for 
a while now and 21 or can't be 20 because it's different and it'll be better and it probably wasn't and 22 well that's now different too and it was different again but still had its own complexity and here we are about to line up for 23 and put all our hopes onto the next year um with the mindfulness that you just shared that we're a bit broken what can we be doing to access the beauty that's also available yeah and and this is where it comes back to about the choices we have about authenticity, humanity, and responsibility mm. in terms of who we are and, and the deliberateness with which we create ourselves in our own lives mm. and our leadership and the ways in which we work, you know, and the opportunity that any set of circumstances presents mm. for us to do that. If you're waiting till everything's like smooth sailing to do this work, then you're missing a trick. Because actually the, the chaos, I, I consider this time a crucible for the creation of a better self and a better yeah. work society and better work at the time when it feels the most difficult, you know, individually and collectively, whether you're thinking with yourself, your partner, your family, your team, your workplace, our society. Yep. In, in, in this space are the biggest and best opportunities that we've ever had, but it's going to take courage. Mm. And this means a willingness, I think, and courage. So first of all, you've got to be aware that this situation exists and there's an opportunity for you to emerge from this better, mm-hmm. better you know, that we're always on the way to better, but it's never and always up trajectory she's a curly she's a curly worthy road yeah you know but there's always an opportunity to be emerging as a better self from any particular set of context circumstances and context and in particular some of the most chaotic and trying you know what are the lessons and the opportunities for us to learn before we forget about them Mm. because we forget pain our brains are wired so that when we're in it we're in it but as soon as it's passed you know you don't remember what it you remember a headache sucks but you can't you can't imagine you can't muster up the pain without the pain being there and so that's a great protective mechanism for us but it also means that we can quite easily lose the feeling state around the growth opportunities so I encourage people not to you know we've done a lot of anesthetizing of pain and suffering you know Um, lots of data coming out of the US I know it's the same in New Zealand I'm sure it is in Australia about what happens to people's at-home drinking habits Mm. and eating etc you know comfort drinking comfort eating etc through COVID you know we we seek to take the pain away whereas if we can kind of sit with it and go what does this present me as an opportunity to understand more about myself what I value where my boundaries are the work I really love to do the, the way I love to do it and to use this time as this reinvention and redesign based mm. based on seeking to be a more authentic version of you and there's never one version of you that's a bit of a little caveat on authenticity there's not one authentic version there are many but to do that, to really seek to understand more about your own humanity, your own human experience and that of the people around you. Like, why do we do the things we do? And how can I work with that rather than against it, not be handicapped by it? And and then this responsibility piece and saying, it's up to me. Because at the same time that we've felt like we're not in control of so much stuff, we're always in 100% control of a bunch of things. And I think this... um, 
this like you know that that responsibility piece what can I take 100% responsibility for, including the shadowy shit that it makes me feel really uncomfortable, but which if I own is a place where I can get new insight, awareness, and decide to do things differently. You know, that's that's where I think it, it sits. Um, yeah, that's the way I suppose I'd describe it in terms of what I see the opportunity being for people, because it really is one. It's massive. Mm. Yeah, and it is. Thank you again. Another bunch of whole bunch of wisdom there. Um, and the crucible, I think, is a cracking. And you've used that word a few times, and I latch onto it and say, you know, for people to be aware that it is a crucible-like situation, and crucibles are not necessarily comfortable. <laughs> you know, they are a place of change. Um, mm. They are they are a place of uh, even to use a slightly different word, transmutation. They're a place where things can, uh, and, and it needs to be under pressure, temperature, fire, like there is an intensity to those things. So I guess what I'm hearing from you is, and I just want to frame this and, and offer it to people and, and love to hear your thoughts on it, is that it is intense, it is hard, and that's okay, and there's still some work to be done in that. Yeah. Yeah, it's good, not. But, this this it's, is not comfortable good. stuff. This yeah, is not good. comfortable stuff. Yeah, good because I think that's one of the things we've had some pretty. Most people would say we've had pretty tough few years, and I, I want to honour that, accept that, and the work to go to a much better place. And I like the way you continuously use better. It's you know I think we share the love of that word. Best mm. is a bit of a, best is a bit of a nonsense. Better is just simply better, um, yeah. but. It's this piece where people have sort of said, but it's already been, you know, no, it's like, yeah, good. And the way we're going to become better through this is probably by turning the heat up a little bit again, but intentionally with the focus of the pieces, as you said, the pieces you can control, the pieces you can own, and at the same time hugging onto the pieces that we probably have a little bit less control of um, and just hanging onto those as well and going, well, they are just what they are. I can't fix them. Uh, I can't change them, but I can acknowledge them. Yeah. And this, uh, we know you and I both know when it comes to learning design for human development, whether you're designing things for kids or for grown up kids in the workplace, uh, is you have to find the sweet spot of what's called productive struggle, where if things are too easy, people don't learn. And if they're too hard, they don't learn. And so there's the space where, you know, we have to, and I know some people listening may go, oh my God, I am tired. Like, and this is what I mean when I use the word before broken. It doesn't mean you're broken and you're lying in bits and pieces on the floor. It just means you're like, you're tired, you just need to lie down. Somebody bring mm. me a cup of tea and a cushion for my feet. <laughs> um, you know, and I think as we've discovered in the last few years, a little couple of weeks at Christmas isn't going to fix it. And no. if we think that the hits are not going to keep coming, then people are smoking something <clears throat> because this is the way life is. Hard stuff happens and then more hard stuff happens and then more hard stuff happens. And then in amongst all the hard stuff uh, uh, is um, joy, um, is beauty, is all of it. It's all mixed together. Mm. And so this uh, finding the space of productive struggle and, and keeping it maintaining it in a healthy way to grow our capacity rather than deplete it is is super important. Yeah. So, so hang on. I've got to go back a little bit here. You 
you say that a couple of weeks off of Christmas going to the beach or doing whatever one does isn't going to fix all of this? No. Oh, jeez. Wow, that's a bit freaky. But, again, honouring <laughs> that because I think, look, we want to believe it will, though, don't we? Yeah, but this is why we have to we have to design for ourselves new ways of working and living that are made for the reality we now occupy. Like we have fundamentally as human beings over time, in particular in the last 200, 250 years, and more recently with the advent of exponential technologies and the rate at which they're changing the world and the way we live and work, we are now living in a world that's not designed by us but not for us, Mm. if that makes sense. And so we have to take responsibility for understanding how the world is designed by us but not for us and learn how to operate in it in a way that works with the way human beings are wired because we are um you know we have these things have been trucking around in their current form for several hundred thousand years and um in particular in the last 50 years say nothing's really changed that much you know um except the world that we live in our capacity for language has grown but all of the stuff we had around social connection culture you know making musical instruments you know 45,000 year old bone flute was found a couple of years ago in Europe so you know the kinds of people we are and the but the world has changed so radically in the last 250 in the last 50 and it's going to accelerate even further over the next 20 to 30, we are just at the beginning of it being magical and extraordinarily difficult. Mm. So what can we do? <laughs> so someone, someone's kind of going, I can imagine a bunch of people going, yeah, this really resonates, you know, to use a bit of a wink word, but this really resonates, Kevin. I'm kind of hearing what you're saying. I kind of get it. So what can I do? What are some simple things? that I might be able to do to help cope and to not just cope, but to possibly even flourish in this? What can I do? One of the first things that I recommend people do is, is just become more aware of who they're being and how they're doing life and work at the moment. Mm. You know, it's like way back when um, in my previous life, when I studied human nutrition at university as part of um, applied sciences, I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid and uh, had way too much fun in 1987 at a target <laughs> university in my first year living away from home. I did not get an A minus average. Yeah. Um, I have a so, similar experience to that myself. Yeah. yeah so, sorry. but that curiosity and in, in being human, like that came about when I was 10 has never gone away. Right. It just underpins my life. Mm. And what, when I was, you know, doing that, studying nutrition at university, one of the first thing you learn is if you want to get people to, before you can actually start working with people about how they are nourishing their bodies, how they're feeding their bodies in a way that optimizes for performance, um, you have to, they have to be aware of what they're currently doing. Mm. So we have to have data on the current system, the system as it stands. And the best thing you can do is get them to keep a food diary for two weeks. Mm. Doing that alone, even if you did nothing else, will change the way they eat and it's the same when we're taking stock of how we're doing life more broadly and I remember when I was I don't know I think I was at intermediate so about 10 or 11 and um, 
I think we used to get list, get lift, left a list of jobs by our parents, latchkey kids, you know, Gen Xs, look after yourselves. Probably too young to be left at home legally, but, you know, you nobody yep. cared in those days. It's like, no. there's the house key, there's food in the fridge, don't die between now and <laughs> 5.30 was basically the rules and there were a list of jobs. Yep. And I remember it was, we were a couple of days in and mum and dad got home from work and the jobs on the list hadn't been done again for the second or third day in a row and so dad was like what are you guys doing with your time and I was like well, can't really ask so he's a lawyer a partner in a law firm and he so he made us keep timesheets <laughs> uh, this is you know for our sin so at 10 or 11 I'm learning this looking, beginning to become more aware of how I'm using my time and for what um, at, at university, I'm learning. Well, if you want to create change for people in the way they um, feed themselves, you know, the first thing to do is bring into their awareness how they're currently doing it. And so that's really the thing now. I don't expect people to keep a food diary or uh, account for their time in six minute blocks. Although yeah. now, now we do it in real time, time recording. But there is that how noticing more and journaling is a great way to do it. Printing out your diary once a week and saying, looking at it and going, well, how am I actually using time? And is this the stuff I value most? What am I feeling is missing from my life? Well, I'm, you know, talk with your children. What would they like more or less from you? Have a conversation with your partner. How are we feeling about how life's been this year? You know, do a bit of a take stock and say, what is it we want to create for our lives? And, and how might that be different? What different things, what different decisions might we have to make? So first of all, it's reflection, awareness, bringing into awareness the current ways in which you're doing stuff and the historic ways and the impact of that, how you feel about that. Mm. And then it's thinking, well, is this what I want to continue? And if that at least gives you some data upon which you can base some experiments and further inquiries, if you like. And I, I get everybody to take that experimental inquiry-based approach to all of this stuff. There's no one right way to do it. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I recommend people do is feed your minds stuff about what it is to be human. Mm. So if you like listening to podcasts and holidays are great, if you're spending time on the road, driving places or on planes, you know, listen to some some good podcasts about to understand more about how the human mind operates, how relationships work, you know, that sort of stuff and think what of that could be useful based on how I want to change the way I'm doing life, work and leadership at the moment. Even those two things, it will take people quite a long way. Mm. I guess the other thing as well is they can always come and do a program with they can. Kate Billing. They can. <clears throat> if, when, if they go, no, nah, this is really... This is um, something I want to do further. And, you know, this is part of the capacity conversation for myself had been how do I want to work, what work do I want to do, mm. with whom, et cetera. And so this time uh, through the last couple of years has been, a, has, as I said earlier, been a crucible for me personally to say, well, you know, I'm in my early 50s now. What do I want for the next 25 years? Dan Sullivan, who I'm a mad fan of, um, talks about having a 25-year plan. Um, I don't, wouldn't call it a plan so much, but definitely a direction of travel. Yeah, that means setting up now for work that I want to keep doing for another twenty-five years. Mm. I think it's interesting. Just when you were talking a moment ago about, um, you know, being clear around having the time to reflect, being aware, taking those 
doing those action steps. And if again, for people, press rewind, maybe five to 10 minutes, say, listen to that again, take some notes, put some actions into play. But if there's some people who, and I often find this with folks, there's people who might be listening kind of go, well, that's not me. I'm actually pretty, you know, I'm I'm good enough. I'm okay. Uh, I'd suggest have another listen and have another think because uh, I suspect everybody at some level consciously or unconsciously is wrestling with some of this stuff. And if you're not consciously wrestling with it, it's probably eating away underneath Um, because the world is changing. The world has shifted. It always is changing. Everything's changing. There's just a constant. It's probably just had this magnifying glass amplification over the last couple of years. Um, And the opportunity is present, as Kate said, to be able to do a bit of work to understand what the brokenness in you is and what the beauty is and um, the whole piece around I love the fact that you challenge us and say, hey, take a moment to be aware, to do some reflection, to keep a simple journal, just to be mindful, to look at your diary and kind of look back in the week and go, was that a good use of me? Yeah. Did that work for me or no? I don't I don't like doing, I'm no good at meetings at nine o'clock in the morning because say I'm a 49 year old woman in perimenopause and I'm not sleeping for three hours a night. So I'm going to talk with my team about moving that nine o'clock meeting till 10. I think that's yeah. the other piece. It's okay to do that. And I, if you need permission, you just had it from Kate Billing. So go get it. Um, yeah. I, I think we've got more control. We have, I know we have more control over more things than we think and also less, I think. And this is, I, I know that there is, and I know that sounds like an oxymoron or paradox. Why would I say that? But there is... So there's an idea that's been talked about, and I think it was a Cotter model, but correct me if I'm wrong, it might be Covey, in fact. Anyway, one of the two starts with a C or a K about the sphere of control, influence, and interest. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm uncomfortable with that and that I think it sets up. I know it, it offers a lot of grey fuzzy area when people can begin to spend time influencing things they really can't Mm. and it takes up capacity in terms of time energy attention etc versus saying what am I in control of and not in control of Mm. so if I'm 100% in control of something I should be able to do something about it if I'm not then I just have to let that shit go Mm. if you start having and I know for some people that might sound uncomfortably binary but um I think it's a great lens through which to have a look at particularly the way some of the stuff you're doing around the way you're living, leading and working. It's like if it's not working for me or it's diminishing my capacity rather than feeding it, et cetera, then what can I do about that? How can I reimagine it? How can I get out of it? How can I do it in a way that it supports me and helps grow my capacity rather than um, feeling like a drain? Mm. That's powerful. And it is that, again, the subtlety of this is so many people, we talked about this before we started as well, this whole ideology around quiet quitting. And so many people, I think, I'm going to go out on a limb here and you can challenge me or correct me here, Kate, but so many people again on this quiet quitting path are doing so because they're also choosing not to make the changes that they can make. You know, if we're going to, like, there is this piece where you have the capacity, the capability, you have the choice to do change. You don't have to go quietly into the night. You can yeah. make the change if you choose to. It may not be comfortable, 
may not always be great. It might lead to other change too, but that's your choice. That's the, that's the power you hold in that space. Yeah, and I think the quite quitting thing, like I say, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the label, but exactly. when I look at the behaviour that it's talking about, it speaks to a couple of different things. First of all, I don't know many people who can quietly quit anything um, because they are in visible um, crux well, positions in organisations and if they just don't do <clears throat> things, shit's going to fall over. So I don't know many people who are actually in that position. Um, but part of the conversation has been, I think, is a really interesting one about when you look at what's been given as examples, it's people putting in place healthy boundaries. Mm. If they're not having the conversation about those healthy boundaries, that could speak to some element of capacity or fear. If I speak up, then I break, you know, people catastrophize out too, and then I die. Basically everything, if you catastrophize it out far enough, gets to it, and then I die. <laughs> so if I say I don't want to answer emails after 8 o'clock at night, um, rather than just stopping doing it, then I might be seen as not a team player. I invite a conflict. I might get my, I know there are restructures coming because there's a recession on the way. And then I might be seen as on the list of, there's a whole lot of really good reasons why people don't Mm. face into the difficult conversations about this. Um, And I think it's also, we've got further to the capacity thing, we've completely screwed up what our view of engagement looks like because there's been this conversation about discretionary effort, which has been misinterpreted often as people going above and beyond, uh, not just in terms of creating value, but in spending their lives doing their job and being over-identified with their jobs, which is really unhealthy. Um, you know, and seeking to get everything from work rather than having a diverse range of relationships and sources of meaning and everything else. So some of it is, a lot of it is correcting a balance that's got completely out of balance and has been amplified by the COVID situation around Mm. online working. Mm. Uh, And it speaks to the very human things about social belonging, connection and safety which are basic security needs. We have three basic human security needs of safety, connection, and self-esteem, you know. And so if I'm going to do anything that threatens those or I perceive others might see me differently and I get chucked out of the tribe and then I can't pay my mortgage, buy food, put gas in the car, and then I die, it's, I'm not going to face into some of these mm. conversations. So it's it's a as with all things human, it's a complex situation. But the more you understand about the context, human and otherwise, the better able we are to see why something might be happening, have been created or why it's happening in the way it does, and therefore we can do something about it. Mm, powerful. It's, again, another powerful conversation there for people to have a pit rewind play again. Kat, I'm really mindful uh, time. We try to keep this till we could go on for hours because it's just, it's just <laughs> simply amazing. Um and, and we honour the people who are listening to kind of give them a nice snippet where whatever they're travelling, yeah. as you said. My one question that I'd love to ask um, as we wrap up, if what's the one thing, if there's one thing that you could offer to people to say, hey, listen, keep listening to, them, listen to this a few times, go for your life, but the one thing I want you to really hear is this. This is the one thing I want you to take away and have a think about. That for me would be 
it's really it's it's an invitation and that invitation is to become deeply curious about what it is to be human mm. because in that and in doing the work we we don't come with a user manual we can wake up just because we can wake up get up operate in the world speak think do stuff we think we've got this whole being human thing nailed there is so much we don't know about our own bodies uh, the way the brain works, the way social relationships work in society, et cetera. I just, I encourage you to get curious about humanness, your own and other people's, because when you do, a whole world of wonder opens opens up to you and you can begin to see the things that get in the way of us being great individually and collectively in new and different ways. And you begin to see ways in which you can deliberately become the person that you're meant to be over and over again through life mm. and do what that person can in the world. Um, you, you don't need to be feeling like you are stuck in a container of one version of you. Um, you contain multitudes and it, I, I just I really encourage you to become a little bit like David Attenborough in your own mind and your own life and about human beings and mm. um, just read a little bit, listen a little bit, notice a bit more about your own life and the people who matter most around you. And I think, you know, be prepared to be amazed by how incredible you and they are and how much more might be possible. Mm. Thank you. And I suspect everybody now knows, if they go right back to the beginning and say what an amazing individual this lady is. Here we are. You now know why. Just a small snippet of why. Uh, and we, w for people who are listening, um, we will put things in the show notes about how to talk, chase, follow Kate Billing. Um, you know, Kate Billing. Where can we go? The most easy place, Kate. Obviously, on social media stuff. But where's the website? LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn's the easiest one at the moment. There is Good. a um, new. New Ooh. practice with a new Ooh. name and a new website coming in 2023. Uh, just going to be focusing 100% on this leadership capacity piece. Yeah, so no. um, in the meantime, the best way to uh, follow Connect. along, get in touch is LinkedIn. Yeah. And, and I do love reading Kate's content and her conversations. Um, so please, so if you want to chase up and open to conversation, we'll put everything we can down below. So if you just to make life easy for those people who are listening to get onto the Kate Billing bus, because it's a cracking bus with plenty of seats. Um, thank you again, Kate. You have really brought us just the most amazing I'm Just looking at some of the little notes I've made in front of me, and I'm going, yeah, you're just a you're just a genius and you just give such a gift to people. Um thank you. Thank you for that. And and for everybody out there listening, thank you for listening. Um, really appreciate your time. And if there's something you'd like to know more about, send us a note. Send Kate a note. Um, this is a conversation that you can tell is very near and dear to her heart and her passion. And uh, I think we'll all be waiting with bated breath for the 2023 website launch and what that looks like. So, um, again, thank you very much, Kate Billing. Pleasure, as always, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. And thank you very much, everyone listening. Really cherish the time you honour us with. And uh, we look forward to our next conversation on Better People, Better Business. Bye.